If you're smarter than the average bear that can actually work against you in leadership, and also with money, on this episode, the dumb things you may be doing with money and how to do better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 396. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. If you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that I'm a big believer in personal leadership, having our own house in order in many ways, and also personally as well. And once in a while, I like to take a step back from some of the core leadership topics that we discuss on the show and look at what we should be doing to keep our own houses in order. And one of those key, key tenets of life is how we are handling our money and our personal finances. And uh, I am so glad to welcome back to the show today, Jill Schlesinger, who's going to be teaching us about some of the dumb things that smart people do with their money. Jill is an Emmy-nominated business analyst for CBS News. She appears on CBS radio and television stations nationwide, covering the economy, markets, investing, and anything else that has a dollar sign. She is a weekly guest on NPR's Here and Now and writes the nationally syndicated column Jill on Money for Tribune Media Services. Jill is the host of the Jill on Money podcast and the nationally syndicated radio show Jill on Money, which won the 2018 Gracie Award for Best National Talk Show. She has been recognized as a top 10 LinkedIn influencer and a top 10 LinkedIn voice, and she is the author of the new book, the Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Jill, I'm so glad to have you back on the show. I am so delighted to be with you. Boy, what a, what a treat that I get to be a repeat guest. Oh, the treat is mine. So here's how it works at our house, Jill. On Thursday nights, it's trash night, and I've enlisted our seven-year-old son, his responsibilities in life of getting trash out to the curb. And so we work together. And uh, once he's done his work and I'm rolling the cans out, I've got my ear pods in and I am listening to Jill on Money every Thursday night. And, uh, you know, so I've got my trash going and I've got my uh, I've got my personal finance going there. So so there you go. You didn't know uh, we were connected in this personal way, did you? I know that there's probably a joke in there something about like <laughs> she's so trashy or something, but I'm going to let your listeners come up with that, okay? <laughs> so, somewhere somewhere there's a Freudian something, I don't uh-huh. know. So speaking of emotion, let's start with emotion. And we talked a bit about this last time too, but the two emotions that hamstring us when it comes to money, you talk about it in this new book too, fear and greed. Tell me more about that. What do you see with people around those? First of all, I think it's really interesting that when we think about our financial lives, we we somehow figure that this is all one big calculation, right? That you that we can sort of distill all the information that you need to know in a formula. And what I have come to find out in my many years first as a trader, then as an investment advisor and financial planner, and now as uh, someone who is still a CFP, so gets lots of questions from my audience, is that our emotions do tend to influence a lot of what we do. You know, at the base level, when we talk about fear and greed, I think the, the best way to see that 
is when you think about your portfolio or your retirement account. You know, at the end of last year, it's the end of December, right around the Christmas holiday, and the stock market is tanking. And all of a sudden, I got flooded with all these emails from people who said, oh my God, what should I do? I'm so scared. Maybe I should sell everything. That's Mm -hmm. fear creeping in. Because you know, for most people, you don't need your money anytime soon. You're probably investing for decades in the future, but you read headlines, you may even log on to your retirement account, you get scared, and that forces you to rethink what your original assumptions were and maybe even impels you to do something, to act. And that action is what I'm trying to stop because often when we're acting in a fear-based state, we're not making the best decisions for ourselves. And then the opposite of that, of course, is if you just sort of rewound the clock and you go back three months prior and you go to the end of August, beginning of September, there are new highs in the stock market. People are riding high. And what are they thinking? They're thinking, oh, I should buy more of this, that, and the other thing. The market's never going to go down, even though you know that it will eventually. And you may lead yourself to think that you can assume more risk than you really can. And you do something. You make some sort of action that, again, may not be in your best interest. And so time and time again, fear and greed, those are the two emotions that tend to creep in and sometimes will lead us astray. One of the mistakes you highlight in the book is that people take financial advice from the wrong people. Who are the wrong people? Can I drop an F-bomb on this podcast? No. (laughs) What if I tell you it's a financial F-bomb? Oh, okay. That one's all right. Okay. Ready for this F-bomb? Ready. Fiduciary. Oh, that sounds so sexy. I know. (laughs) Okay. So reason why I bring up the word fiduciary is that it's a really important concept in the world of personal finance and all financial transactions. And a fiduciary, to boil it down to its simplest take, is that someone who's acting under a fiduciary standard is somebody who has to put your best interest before his or her own or the company's. So what you'll find is that Most people believe that the person giving them financial advice does that. I think it stands to reason. I I don't blame people for not realizing that. I think that it's hard to imagine for most people that we have an entire industry that does not have to put your best needs first. And what we now know is that because of all of that confusion, many people are taking what they think is financial advice that's in their best interest, that is really financial salesmanship. It's, yes, this thing is suitable for you, but it may not be the best thing for you. And I'm really worried that when people are hearing from some financial professionals, they believe that with that sales job, or that sales presentation is something that is best for them, but it may not be. And I point this out because time and time again, people just don't recognize that not everyone is out there looking for you as the number one primary, most important part of the financial process. It's really interesting to me listening to the callers who you talk to on your show 
and some of the missteps that people make. And as you point out in the book, that we go to a physician and we assume they're giving us advice in our best interest, and we go to a lot of other professionals. And yet, in the financial world, that's not necessarily the case. Is it as simple as asking the question, are you a fiduciary before you go further? And I mean, what are what are the things we should be watching out for around that? Well, I think a couple of things. Number one is that in terms of taking financial advice from the wrong people, if you are sitting in front of somebody who is trying to sell your product or offering you some tip, I think it's fair to say, just so I understand, cousin Johnny, because some of these people are related to you, um, you're held to the fiduciary standard at all times, right? Because there are some professionals that can say, well, when I give you advice and actual financial planning advice, then I have to put you first. But if I sell you a product, I don't. So you can actually ask that question. I think the other point here is when talking about taking financial advice from the wrong people, I think there are a lot of individuals who are turning to financial professionals when maybe they don't even need to. And that can also get you into a little bit of a problem. So for example, we had someone call up the podcast who said, you know, I went and spoke to this financial advisor. And what it really was, was an insurance salesperson. Mm -hmm. And the insurance salesperson convinced this young guy who's making a lot of money, by the way, to not use his retirement plan at work but instead to put the money into an insurance product. Now, that's just bad, right? That is bad news. And what I'm very concerned with is that people understand that there are certain things that you have to have addressed in your financial life before you should even think about seeing a financial professional. One is, by the way, do you have all that consumer debt paid down? You know, you've got some, maybe a credit card, maybe you've got a car loan pay that down. Do you have the emergency reserve fund? Is that all set? Do you have the six to 12 months of your living expenses socked away in a boring savings account? And number three, are you maximizing your retirement plan contributions to the best of your ability? Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to put $15,000 a year into a 401k. You may want to just put up to the match in your 401k and put the rest in a Roth IRA. But are you putting away money into a retirement plan before you're starting to go through this process of, say, being sold some strange product with lots of fees? The big antidote to all of this is to ask a lot of questions. And the funny thing that I found, Dave, is that in researching this book, oftentimes people who are really smart don't actually like asking a lot of questions. I think they believe it might be somewhat disrespectful. They might say, hey, I'm a pro in my business. I'd hate for people to second guess me. Or they might think, I don't want to show that I don't know what this thing is or how this works. And there seems to be, unfortunately, quite a bit of shame associated with your personal financial life. And I just want to strip that away. Man, you got to just ask the questions be willing to be the person who asks the question in a respectful way. You know, you don't want to have to attack somebody, but it is fair to say, I just don't understand this. And honestly, if you're being asked to purchase something that you really don't understand, 
please walk away. Because if you can't understand it in the course of a 10-minute conversation, it is probably not necessary for you to buy something that complicated. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the connection between asking questions and in any, even in leadership. I mean, so many of us as leaders get into roles where people look to us for advice. And, and many of us have seen and been taught, like, we need to be the expert. And really, the best leaders today are asking questions. And we are constantly talking about that on the show and helping our community to get better at that. And I'm hearing you say the same thing of, you know, no one wants to look foolish, right? That said, when we're in these situations where we're not the experts, clearly, for most of us, we need to be asking those questions and have the courage to say, hey, I'm not sure what's up here and tell me more. And if it's not clear, walk away, right? I think that when you're a leader, one of the things that is uh, almost a badge of honor is that you grow up and you mature and you realize, I cannot know everything. I can't. And in fact, the best teams, as I'm sure you have discovered and everyone listening knows, is filled with people who know more than you as the leader. That you have to be clear that it is impossible for you to know everything. And so in many respects, when you talk to a financial professional, think of it more almost as this is a person on my financial team. And you would really be sore at someone on your team who couldn't really explain to you the why behind the idea. And that's what we are hoping that people do with us in our financial lives, that you give us the why. I'm sure you had this experience even with a doctor where you have some fancy doctor who sort of talks in jargon and it's so annoying. And then you get a great doctor who just speaks to you in a way that you can absorb the information. That is what I'm hoping for when you are going through your personal financial life and really having conversations that are tough to have because, again, we're emotional. It's hard to focus. It's one of the reasons why I really think when it's possible, having both members of a couple being part of a conversation with a financial professional makes sense. Or even if you're bringing your aging parents in to talk to somebody, that you're there not to cast judgment, but to be another set of ears. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Okay. So one of the other mistakes you say is taking on too much college debt. And you write in the book, education costs have skyrocketed over the last few decades so that the overall value of higher education for individuals has eroded. That means that you have to work harder to make sure that the degree you seek makes sense for you, given your financial circumstances and career aspirations. Many smart people fail to do that work. They assume that any undergraduate or professional degree is worth it at any price, which simply isn't true. Jill, so many of us have heard education is always a good investment, but I'm I'm getting the sense from what you're writing here, there's some nuance to that. Tell, Tell us about the nuance. Well, there is no doubt that a college degree specifically is something that will add to your lifetime earnings. We know that. Pretty much every data point will prove that. What is not clear is how much debt is actually reasonable to attain that degree. And I think that what we're starting to see is that carrying tons of student loans can preclude you from a lot of different pathways going forward. So let's talk about it from the point of view of the student. You're a student, you take on a lot of debt, you get your college degree. You graduate with a job that barely supports that monthly payment. And 
because you have that high monthly payment, you may not be able to take advantage of certain career tracks that might be better for you. In other words, you might stay in a job that is a nice, consistent, decent job, but you're incapable of reaching for a much better opportunity because you're scared. You've got to make that payment. And so what I have found with younger people is that some of their career decisions are really stifled because of that debt. Now, let's move to the parents. Parents will often feel terrible that they cannot 100% write that check out to the college, right, to get the, the kid's education. And so what they'll say is, oh, Dave, I know that you could go to state school, but you really want to go to this private school. We don't want you to be saddled with that debt. We will assume the debt. But what we're now finding is that the parents, even the grandparents, are having big problems as they get older. The fastest growing segment of student loan borrowers is the group of 60 and older. And that means, is that that is insane, right? I mean, these are huge numbers. And what we're finding is that a lot of these people have made bad choices around retirement. They might say, well, I'll, I'll support the college debt, but I won't put as much into my retirement plan. Or gee, uh, what I'll do is uh, instead of retiring at age 63, I'll retire at age 66, only to later find out that they're downsized when they're 64. So things don't work out as well. So what I really think is important is education. Absolutely. But family financial security, family financial security, meaning from the kids to the parents to the grandparents, all of these variables have to be taken into account. I think it's it's a little different when you're talking about some of these top tier schools, because often they're the ones that provide the most financial aid and scholarships. They've got huge endowments. The problems that I've seen when I hear from a lot of the radio and podcast listeners is for maybe the third and fourth tier private schools where you're accumulating the debt because there's no big endowment that you can get, you can't get a great package. You're coming out of school and you're not getting the primo job. You're getting a good job, not a great job. And I also think it is incredibly important for people to be very clear about these professional degrees. I interviewed a professor from NYU's Stern School of Business, and he essentially said in no uncertain words, gosh, unless your company is paying for your MBA, I'd think twice about it. This is a guy who's a professor at NYU. So you got to be careful. I've heard you say so many times to people who've called in your show, prioritize your own retirement savings before putting aside money for your kids to go to college. And I have to admit, the first time I heard that, I was like, really? Uh, As a parent? And the more I've heard you explain that and talk about that and thinking about it, it just, it makes so much sense in a lot of ways to do that. And one of the interesting surveys that you talk about in the book is from the National Association of Colleges and Employers, their annual survey of what they are looking for, what's the difference maker of when they bring people in. And the 2008 report shows an applicant's alma mater was actually the ninth most important factor in the survey. So many other things are much more important. And it just kind of backs up what you're saying of being thoughtful about where you're going to invest that expense, whether it's a state school or a private school. Is it worth it? Is the investment likely to be worth it? 
That's exactly it. And I think that it, that many people are influenced by their own experiences, right? So they'll say, you, Dave, you might say, hey, I went to a good school. I want to make sure I have that for my kids. And maybe your experience in college is really different than your own children's. Maybe it's because you, Dave, are already connected, that you've got a great network. A lot of people in previous generations went to the best brand name school they could because they didn't have connections and networks. Now we have networks that are actually created so easily through clicks, through relationships. And I think that sometimes we overestimate the value of these college networks when in fact, we're finding that what employers are really looking for is work experience and enthusiasm and ability to communicate. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's not. It's very difficult, frankly, for a millennial right this second. It is much harder for you than it was for me because when I came out of college, basically everyone got a job who wanted a job and there's fierce competition now. But I'm not sure you're better off navigating that fierce competition with Thirty-five or forty or $80,000 of debt hanging on over your neck. That also begs the question of if you do ha- decide to take on debt, is there a rule of thumb of what is a decent amount to take on versus an amount that becomes just uh, untenable? You know, there's a really smart guy who studies this. His name is Mark Kantrowitz. And one of the things he told me years ago was, a pretty easy formula to keep in the back of your head is your total amount of borrowing should not be more than what you think you're going to make in your first job. So let's play that out. If I am a, a journalism major, your first job at a maybe a big network might be something called a broadcast associate. You're going to make $35,000 a year. Okay. Now, if you went and borrowed tons and tons of money and you've got $150,000 in debt and you're only going to make $35,000 in that first job, you are going to be in trouble. Conversely, if you're a computer science major and your first job is probably going to be more like $85,000 or $90,000, then maybe you can afford to have seventy-five dollars or eighty dollars in debt. The problem that we find is that I know it is so hard to have a conversation with an 18-year-old about what are you going to make and how are you going to do this? It's important for families to start these conversations early, meaning that when your kid is a freshman in high school, that's when you start to, with you know, if you're married or have a partner, that you sit down and you guys decide what is reasonable for this family. And then You have a conversation with your kid. I tell the story in a book of a family where they said to the kid, look, I get that you want to go be a a film major at USC, but this is what the family can afford. If you want to do that, you're going to have to figure out a way to help finance that. And this kid is an animal. She is off finding people, finding scholarships, and she's really got some skin in the game. I think it is incredibly important to try to make sure that your kids are involved in this process, not just academically, but also financially. One of the other points you make in the book, which I had, I don't think I've really ever thought about, was there's the possibility even to negotiate with schools. And you tell a story of, I think it was one of your friends who yeah. basically picked up the phone and had a scholarship from one school, but wanted to go somewhere else. What happened? It was so great because, uh, you know, all of these schools are competitive, 
And in this case, we're talking about law school. And a lot of the problems that we see among families is they get these letters back with some sort of scholarship awarded. And what happens is the kid's like, oh, I don't want to go to that school, right? I want to go to the one that's giving me no money. Right. (laughs) Well, you get your kid on the phone with the other school that's not offering money as this young woman did. And she basically said, hey, the other school is giving me $35,000 a year as a merit scholarship, meaning tax-free, my friends. So 35 grand a year versus zero. And when it turned out that Georgetown Law School decided, hey, you know what? We really like this kid. We don't want her to go to that other school. They didn't come up with 35 grand, but they came up with 25 grand, wow. 25 grand a year. So $100,000 tax-free that this kid did not have to assume in extra debt or payments from the, for the family. Your kids have got to get involved. And yes, these things are negotiable. And one phone call. It's really amazing. It's really amazing. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, speaking of kids, one of the other mistakes you point out in the book is you saddling your kids with your own money issues. And one of the points that you make is parents emphasize financial matters sometimes too much in their parenting, which is interesting because I think a lot of us have the traditional financial advice that I've heard is you don't talk enough about teaching your kids about money and talking about financial matters. But you've seen also the opposite is true of Mm. focusing too much on it. Tell me more about that. I think that a lot of high achieving families may not realize it, but when you come home and start complaining to your spouse or to your friends and your kids over here that you're really mad because you only got a low six-figure bonus when someone else at work got a much higher one. All of a sudden, your kid starts to hear that you are putting some value on this money issue that goes beyond maybe what the kid can really contemplate. Now, look, it's possible in a weird way, I get that people can sort of forget themselves, right? You can be the high-priced professional in any field, and you know that you're lucky. I'm not saying that you you have to sit there and, and get down on your knees every single day in front of your kids and say you're so fortunate. But I think that we have to be careful about what we're saying to our kids about what we do and about valuing our professional commitments. And what we're trying to display is some balance between demystifying money, but not oversharing, whether it's a financial concern or a little bit of an obsession on your own part. I tell a story in the book about some clients of mine who were lawyers, and they were very successful, but the clients made much more money than they did. And they really pushed their kids in a direction that was like, well, you always have to be the client. You should never be the lawyer. You're always going to work for this person. You'll never make real money, real, remember what that is. That's their definition of real, unless you pursue this, 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 and this, and these specific careers. And you know, your kids hear that and they want to satisfy you and they want to do right by you, but they may not actually be happy along that course. So you've got to keep yourself in check here. Again, enough information to sort of have gratitude that we're lucky, not too much so that you're 
really pushing your kids into a money-only type of calculation around career. You talk about your dad a lot in the book. You say, my dad didn't get everything right as a parent or a manager of his own money, but he did model calmness and balance around financial affairs that positioned my sister and me to deal with money more rationally as adults. For that, I will always be grateful. What inspiration do you take from your dad around that? You know, my dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, which meant in a weird way, more than many other professions, he was judged every day and he judged himself by plus minus. Did I make money today? Did I lose money today? It's very different. You know, you could say, hey, I'm Dave. I host a podcast. I help all these people. And it's so great. It's gratifying, right? Because you get these great feedback or you're a doctor and you help people. And of course, you're earning a living. But when you are a trader, it is basically dollars and cents. I think that my father was quite clear that he was in a position that while he made a bunch of money, he never wanted to make that the focus of his real life. He was a guy who really thought about, I want to have uh, enough time to be able to go coach my kids' soccer games or attend every high school soccer and basketball game because he was crazy like that. And he made some choices, I think, in his life that really did not put money first. It put family security in a good place, right? I want to secure my family. But beyond a certain amount, he didn't go crazy. He did not pursue money as the be-all, end-all. And when it came to a time in his life where he had the opportunity to retire early, he did it because he said, I really feel like my health is going to suffer if I don't do this. I can't put that at risk too. And I think that both my sister and I have a pretty good head on our shoulders when it comes to money. Uh, We were surrounded by people who had a lot more and had a lot less. And I think that my father and mother really were clear that it's not the accumulation that is important. It's living the life that makes you happy. And they were very supportive for both of us, whatever we did. Well, I'm so excited for everything you've done with this book and the podcast. Uh, It's influenced so much of my thinking around personal finance. So the book, again, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. It is fabulous. I'm going to have all of the book notes uh, posted with this week's episode as well. Jill, before I let you go, last time you were on, I asked you what was your best and worst financial move, as you often ask people. I am curious in the last few years, as you've been doing the radio show and as you've been doing the podcast and talking to so many people, and as this book has come out, what have you changed your mind on in the last few years on the advice that you give to clients? I love this question. I talk about, I mean, not so much in the last few years, but early in my career, I really thought I could time the market. It's my huge blunder and it's the dumb thing number 13. That's something that I have absolutely changed over the longer term. More recently, I think the change that I have seen in myself is that I think that I have a much better appreciation for the millennial generation and how hard they've had it. I think that I underestimated what it was like for an entire generation of people to watch their families suffer through a financial crisis and what it meant for those people to graduate in a time of such uncertainty and how I am so happy that 
the end result of that is not that you have people who are hiding from these problems. I am very encouraged by how much millennials actually want to take control of their financial lives. And I think I miscast them in my mind as a certain type. And I think I was one of those people who kind of bought the silly, easy descriptions. And what I've come to find out interviewing them, hearing from them, is it's such a thoughtful, fascinating generation. And I hope they're so much smarter than we are because I'm going to get old and I need these people to take care of us. Mm, Indeed. And we've seen so much in the popular press in the last decade. And I've heard it from many clients and leaders as well of, you know, not understanding this millennial generation and they feel really entitled. And it's interesting. I'm starting to see more now thoughtful writing and what you just said, Jill, on they really went through an incredible time. And it's very easy to trivialize that. And if we are willing to engage and listen, ask questions like we were talking about earlier, there's really some incredible, incredible, thoughtful, wonderful people that are part of this generation that are doing some amazing things. And so it's a, it's a good reminder for us to pay attention to that and change our thinking on it a bit, perhaps, if we have been in that I've been in that thinking before. So thank you so much for that. Absolutely. And I would say the best thing that you can do if you really want to get a sense of that is to have some mentoring relationships. And you know, you can, I'm sure you've seen this a million times over. The best mentoring relationships are where both sides are learning so much about the other. I feel like having some younger people around me at work and some people that I'm mentoring has really enriched my sense of how to navigate leadership, how to navigate advice, and how to be just more of a collegial employee and coworker. It's just been fantastic. So go find yourself a millennial to adopt. The book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Jill Schlesinger, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Being able to engage credibly in conversations about money and finance is a core competency for leaders, and yet it's one most of us didn't get a lot of training in, but we need to be effective if we're going to be able to influence. And that's one of the reasons we focused on this topic, both from the professional lens and the personal lens, so many times over the years on the show. Several past episodes that'll be helpful to you if today's conversation got you thinking. One of them is episode 244, Improve Your Financial Intelligence with Joe Knight. On that episode, Joe and I talked in detail about some of the key financial terminology that leaders really need to know in order to engage credibly in conversations. And even if you don't engage, at least to know what's happening in conversations when you sit down with the senior leadership team, when you sit down with the finance folks, and when you sit down with customers and are be able to talk confidently or donors perhaps about your organization. Uh, Episode 244 is a great starting point. We talked in detail about the financial intelligence book. A couple of hours of your time can get you a lot of traction in getting better at this than most people. We talk in detail about how to do that in episode 244. Uh, Back in episode 322 was the last time Jill was on. We talked about how to manage your money. In that episode, we talked about things that we didn't mention today that are also part of Jill's book, 
the importance of having a will, uh, the importance of really thinking about insurance effectively, why not to time the market, as Jill talked a little bit about today. Key, key lessons there as well. Uh, all of that's still extremely relevant for today. Episode 322 is where to dive in if you'd like to hear more from Jill. I'd also recommend episode 355, How to Approach Corporate Budgeting with Jody Wadrich. He was on talking about a skill set that, again, most of us have never really received any training on, or if we did, it was someone pulling us aside and saying, here's how you do this. And yet many of us find ourselves in the situation where we're asked to put together a budget for the first time, we've received a new position or a new set of responsibilities, and someone said, put together a budget, and we don't know where to start. In that episode 355, Jody talked in detail about how to go through the process of putting together a corporate budget or really a budget of any size for any organization and where to begin your thinking on that. And I think you'll find that useful if you find yourself in that situation. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 356 last year, Four Rules to Get Control of Your Money. My guest on that episode was Jesse Meekum. He is the founder of a software called You Need a Budget. It's the personal finance software Bonnie and I use for our own financial tracking. And uh, whether you use that software or not, Jesse has and his organization have four key rules on how to really get control of your personal finances. I think you'll find that extremely helpful. That's episode 356. You can access all of the past episodes by going over to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership. That's going to give you access to be able to search the entire library since 2011 by topic. It's also going to give you access to my free 10-day audio course, the weekly leadership guide, all the book notes, including all the highlights I had from Jill's book, and so much more. Get access to all of that for free. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, and I will see you next Monday for our next conversation. Take care.